الحمد لله حمد كثيرا طيبا مباركا فيه كما يحب ربنا ويرضى وصلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا اللهم عالم الغيب والشهادة فاطر السماوات والأرض رب كل شيء ومليك أشهد أن لا إله إلا أنت أعوذ بك من شر نفسي ومن شر شيطاني وشركي وأن أقترف على نفسي سوءا أو أجره إلى مسلم رضيت بالله ربا وبالإسلام دينا وبمحمد صلى الله عليه وسلم النبي ورسوله سبحان الله وبحمده عدد خلقه ورضا نفسه وزينة عرشه ومداد كلماته سبحان الله وبحمده عدد خلقه ورضا نفسه وزينة عرشه ومداد كلماته سبحان الله وبحمده عدد خلقه ورضا نفسه وزينة عرشه ومداد كلماته الحمد لله uh, thank you guys for joining me this morning. Inshallah, we're reading from the book again, The 70 Laws of Virtue, The Untold Story of Prophet Yusuf. If you have not purchased your copy of this book, uh, I suggest you do so. Purchase your copy of this book. This is my own personal copy. Um, the book is uh, 350 pages of nothing but lessons extracted from the story of Prophet Yusuf alayhi salam. <clears throat> so this morning, inshallah, we'll be reading from law number 51. For those of you who have the book, we'll be reading from page 250. <clears throat> page 250. The law here is learn to stay within your circle of competency. Learn to stay within your circle of competency. And this um, this this title, learn to stay within your uh, circle of competency, is something that um, I heard Warren Buffett say, not personally, but um, in a conversation that he had. Uh, many of you may be familiar with the conversation that Jay-Z had with Warren Buffett. It was a, a interview or conversation that they were having. And one of the questions that um, Warren Buffett was asked was, you know, where does where's his skill set best suited? And he said, one of the, the lessons that I've learned in my life is to stay within your circle of competency. All right. So we want to look at the story of Prophet Yusuf and see how this law applies. Yusuf, he said, put me in charge of the treasures of the land, for I am truly reliable and adept. I'm truly reliable and adept. All right. This was after Yusuf was, let me give you some context here. This was after Yusuf was, um, after Yusuf was released from prison. Right, he's released from prison. The king takes Yusuf and puts him in his in his court, right? And he wants to give Yusuf a bigger position. He said, I'm gonna make him my personal assistant. And I'm going to give him or place in his lap 
all of the responsibilities that come with being in second in command. Some of us love positions of authority simply because we've really never had much authority in our lives. So the moment the opportunity presents itself to us for us to be in a position of authority, we take it. And unfortunately, we don't really understand that with responsibility comes accountability. With responsibility comes accountability. And, you know, a person who has never really had anything, they don't really understand that. They don't understand that. They just look at, oh, the, the, you know, the position that I have, but they don't understand that with that position comes responsibility. It's like a person who's never had money before, a person that has never had money. And then when you give them money, they squander it because they don't know what to do with it. They think that money is there to spend frivolously on clothes and bags and shoes and, you know, this and that. They don't know how to take money and allow money to work for them. <clears throat> so Yusuf, السلام, rather than taking on the responsibility that the king was trying to give him, he said, Place me over the treasury of Egypt, for I am truly reliable and I am adept. Right. He didn't want everything that the king was trying to give him. He didn't want everything that the king was trying to give him because he knew that that was above his pay grade. And I want us to understand this. All right. Oftentimes we allow others to dictate where our skills are best suited, compromising our ability to be effective because we confuse quality with quantity something you guys have heard me say a lot sometimes or oftentimes we allow others to dictate to us where our skills are best suited compromising our ability to be effective because we confuse quality with quantity we do it in marriage too. Let me tell you how we do it in marriage. Somebody says, oh, I think you and this person would be a good match, right? How many, how many people here have heard somebody say that to them? Oh, I think you and, you and so-and-so would be a good match. And you go based upon that because you put more trust in their judgment than you do your own. Some of us have failed at marriage so many times, we don't even trust ourselves anymore. We have failed at marriage so many times, or one time is enough. <laughs> one time for some people is enough, but we've lost all confidence within ourselves. So we don't even trust our own judgment. So we allow somebody else to dictate to us where we are best suited in a marriage or where we are best suited in a relationship. Oh, I think you and so-and-so would make a good couple. And you have people call themselves trying to hook you up. Rather than saying, hey, I want to introduce you to somebody and then let you decide whether or not that's for you. I'll keep my opinions to myself, but I'm going to make a connection. I'll introduce you to the person and then I'll let you guys decide where you want to go. That's what a mature person would do. Children want to hook you up. Oh, I think you and you, you know, would make a cute couple, right? We're, we're not 14, 15, 16 years old. 
we're adults. Don't hook me up with anybody. You can introduce me to the person or introduce me to the person's page, introduce me to the person's wali, and then let me decide. Let me decide where I believe, you know, my heart is best suited in terms of a situation. And But we allow people to do this all the time. Oh, I think you would be good over here. Or I think that you would be good over here. And, and we go. We go based on that. And what we do is we compromise our ability to be effective because we confuse quality with quantity. The king sought to appoint Yusuf to a high station in his court. Yusuf saw that his skill could be most effective if he stayed within his own realm of competency. Less is more. I said this before, learn the art of less is more. More is less, because if you spread yourself too thin, you'll end up doing very little. But if you restrict yourself to one particular circle and you master that, you can get more accomplished because you are going to be more effective in that particular place. You understand? It's like a, a student of knowledge, something that you know a lot of students of knowledge do. I, I know I did it when I first graduated and came home. Um, you found me. I was on a plane, you know, every other weekend. You know, I'm flying here, traveling here, traveling there, doing random lectures here, doing random lectures there. You know, and over time, that that kind of it it it, it takes a toll on you. It takes a toll on your family over time, uh, which is why I don't do that today. I have the luxury, alhamdulillah, of not doing that today. But at the beginning, I was traveling everywhere. And the more that I was doing, the less I was accomplishing. The more that I was doing in terms of traveling to this community, traveling that community, this, this week I'm at this community, next week I'm on a plane at that community, this next week, the following week, I'm, I'm at this particular community. The more that I did, the less I accomplished. The more that I did, the less that I accomplished. The less that I accomplished, meaning in terms of my effectiveness as a student of knowledge or as an imam or as a leader in the Muslim community. The more that I did, the less that I accomplished. So if I would have died, Allah forbid, during that time, I would have died having done basically random lectures here, 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 but having not really having established myself as a leader within the Muslim community in terms of writing books, in terms of educating people on a personal level. Um, by the time I kind of figured that out, I said, I need to be more stationed. I need to be more stationed so I can get more done. And by traveling less, I was able to write more books. I was able to develop more courses. I was able to work with people on a more personal level. And I was able to accomplish more. Less is more. You understand? Less is more. So while the king sought to appoint Yusuf to a high station in his court, Yusuf saw that his skill set would be most effective if he stayed within his own realm of competency. Raised in the house of the chief financial officer of Egypt's high court, the only the highest position next to the king, 
Yusuf was educated to the inner workings of money management based upon the instructions of the Aziz. When he took Yusuf in as a servant, he said to his wife, Ekrimi Methwai, honor his stay. Perhaps he will be useful to us or we may adopt him as a son. So this was the Aziz who took Yusuf in. The Aziz is now responsible for Egypt's wealth. Taking Yusuf in, don't you think that he educated Yusuf if he treated Yusuf more like a son than he did a servant or a slave? He educated Yusuf. And this is why when the king tried to appoint Yusuf to this high station, Yusuf decided, no, I'm best suited here. My skill set is best suited here, right? Don't let other people dictate to you where you belong. Know yourself and understand yourself and you decide where you are best suited, all right? So little did Yusuf know that the skill that he acquired from while living in the house of the second most powerful man in Egypt, that he would it would come through in the clutch at a time when his life was shifting from rags to riches, right? I struggled to use that phrase in the clutch. I'm always asking my kids, you know, did I say it right? Did I did I did I use it in the right way? I think I used it in the right way here. <laughs> but at the time that Yusuf was learning this skill from the Aziz and his wife and his wife, he didn't know that that skill set was going to come in clutch at a time when his life was transitioning from rags to riches. This is the fulfillment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's statement in the same verse. This is how we establish Yusuf in the land so that we might teach him the interpretation of dreams. Allah will, Allah's will will always prevail, but most people know not. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَكَذَارِكَ This is how we establish Yusuf in the land. This is how we establish Yusuf in the land, meaning Everything that Yusuf learned when he was a kid from the Aziz was going to you know, be useful to him as he got older. And the same thing happens with our lives. We don't realize that all of the odd jobs that we've worked since we were like 16, 17, jobs that we've done, right? Even if you were a street dude, you were a street dude, you were hustling, you were selling drugs or doing whatever it was you were doing in the streets, you didn't know at that time that all of those skills that you were developing, you were going to be useful to you later on in your life. You didn't even know that. There were many things that I learned as a teenager out in the streets that I never knew that I would be able to put to use in my professional life. I mean, most of us didn't even think that we were going to live past 25. Most of us didn't even think that we were going to live past 25. So to arrive at a position as, a, as an adult, and then you're still able to reach back into some of your experiences and pull from those experiences to use them in where you are currently in life, it's a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I actually have another chapter in here, chapter 54. It states that you will not be able to see the full picture until you connect the dots. You will never be able to see the full picture until you connect the dots. So Yusuf didn't ask anything of the king despite his riches. 
and authority over Egypt. However, his only request was that the king place him in a position that he was confident that he could fulfill. It's like the imam asks you as a brother, if any of the brothers that are listening, the imam asks you, say, hey, brother, you know, you're a good brother. You attend the masjid all the time. I see you in the masjid all the time. Can you be the wali for this sister? And this happens a lot, right? And what does the brother do? In most instances, he says, yeah, I, I'll be the wali for the sister. Not really realizing what being a wali is all about. Not really understanding, you know, the role, the responsibility, the requisites of being a wali. And not definitely not understanding the accountability that comes with abusing, you know, that type of situation. You understand? And we do it all the time. The imam says, brother, you know, I, I see you in the masjid all, all the time. You seem like a good brother. Can you be the wali for this sister? And because we want to appease the imam, we want to make the imam feel like, you know, we got his back. You know, we're confident. We tell the imam, yes, I, I'll, I'll do it. You know, because we want to make the imam proud. We want to make the imam feel like, you know, I'm here to assist you in any way I can, brother imam. And while that attitude might be great, while that sentiment is great, you have to understand that you are not that guy. You're not that guy, pal. You're not that guy. And you have to know that. The imam doesn't know that. The imam just pushing off the responsibility on somebody else. Hey, I see you in the masjid all the time. Can you be the wali of this sister? You yourself have to say to yourself, number one, I don't even know what being a wali is all about. I don't know if I even have the time to assist this sister in getting married. I don't have the time or the energy. I don't even know if my wife would be cool with me, you know, representing this particular sister or representing any sister. It's no, let me talk to my wife, brother, imam, and I'll get back with you. Let me speak with my wife and see how she feels about it. It's none of that. It's no, you know, brother, imam, I don't know the first thing about being a wali. It might be better for you to give that situation to somebody else. Uh, that's that's not my, my realm. That's not my domain. We, we don't do that. Here again, we allow other people to dictate to us where our skill set is best suited. Rather than us taking responsibility and saying, I don't know the first thing about being anybody's wali. I probably need to sit in a class or read a book myself on being somebody's wali. I'm sorry, brother Imam, I can't do that. With all due respect, I would love to help you in this particular capacity, but you know, somebody who doesn't have something can't give what they don't have. Sorry, I'm not that guy. You understand? You guys follow me? So Yusuf's only request was that the king place him in a position, that the king place him in a position that he was confident that he could fulfill. This was pretty unusual considering that most people in the presence of a powerful friend or constituent expect that some advantage or favor be extended on the basis of their friendship and or acquaintance. Yusuf didn't request anything from him. Here's the king of Egypt. Here's the king of Egypt. 
telling you that he's going to place you in this position here. Most people who have powerful friends, rich friends, right, wealthy friends, they usually, you know, have some level of expectation that they would, you know, extend some of their riches, some of their power, some of their wealth to them. Yusuf didn't want anything from him except to be placed in a position that he felt he was confident that he could fulfill. So the earnestness of Yusuf's request was similar to that of Rabia ibn Ka'b. So I want to take you back to a situation that happened during the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. I want to draw parallels between what happened between Yusuf and the king and what happened between the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and one of his companions by the name of Rabia ibn Ka'b. All right. I want to draw parallels between this because I want to make sure that the example or the lesson here or the concept here is fully understood. So oftentimes in the chapters, I'll talk about what's happening in the story of Yusuf, and then I'll pull you back to an incident that is similar to that that happened during the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. All right. During the time of the Prophet ﷺ, there was a companion of his by the name of Rabia ibn Ka'ab. Rabia ibn Ka'ab, who was, um, you know, just from the lower tiers of Meccan society. He used to carry the water bucket for the Prophet ﷺ, so if the Prophet needed to make wudu, you know, he was there. He would go get the water, he would bring the water back, you know. And so one day, the Prophet ﷺ, seeing Rabia's situation, seeing that, you know, this guy has never had anything anything more in his life than you know where he is at this particular moment you know you see some people and you know they toil hard they work hard in life and they never seem to rise above a certain place so the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam turns to rabia and he says ya rabia sell me urtik ask me for whatever you want and i'll give it to you ya rabia Ask me for whatever you want, I'll give you whatever you want. Meaning, ask me for what you want, and I'll make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I will use my position with God to ask him to give you what you ask, ask for, to satisfy your request. This is the Prophet lending to Rabir some of the position and status that he has with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is what knowledge does to a person. This is how knowledge makes a person lenient and merciful and compassionate and understanding. This is what real knowledge does. Real knowledge doesn't make you haughty or arrogant or condescending or ignorant. Real knowledge doesn't do that to you. So what we see from many individuals in our community who profess to have knowledge but the rigidity, the harshness, the haughtiness, the arrogance, it just doesn't line up. It doesn't align. You know, like you're professing to have knowledge, but what we are seeing is something totally different. What we're seeing is something totally different. A person who has real knowledge is going to get up in the third of the night and pray for his ummah, pray for his community, make dua for his community. You understand? That's what a real person of knowledge. Ask your local imam, your local student of knowledge, ask your local scholar, sheikh, how often does he get up in the third of the night and make dua for his community? Make dua by mentioning members of his community's name, 
in his dua. That's real knowledge. When do we ever lend to somebody our position? You know, we take time out of our lives to extend to somebody in our community who we know will never rise above whatever position and status they have in life, but we lend to them some of our position, some of the position that God has given us to make the make their lives a little easier. The Prophet وسلم, says to Rabia, Selni Urtik, ask me for whatever you want, no restrictions. No restrictions. Ask me for whatever you want. And the sad thing about it is some of us have, have been, you know, have had such a horrible experience in Islam. We don't even know what real leadership looked like. When somebody is merciful and compassionate and understanding and, you know, when somebody is, when somebody does extend that to us, we abuse them. We take kindness for weakness. We take compassion as cowardice. We take kindness for weakness. We take compassion as cowardice. The person is not a coward. The person just being compassionate with you, understanding with you. We have been so marred and scarred in our communities. We don't even know what real leadership looks like. And it's, it's sad. It's sad. We don't, we don't respect that type of leadership. We only respect the rule with an iron fist. That's the only thing that we respect. Not respected, but we fear it. Because much of our relationship with leadership has been fear, not respect. And this goes all the way back to slavery. <laughs> and I, I might be opening a can of worms here, but much of our relationship, especially as African-Americans, much of our relationship with leadership in this country has been a relationship of fear, not respect. We fear the police. We don't respect them. We fear, you know, the slave masters. You understand? We we fear. You know, we don't we don't respect. We don't even know what respect looks like. I don't know what you said. I don't know what leadership looks like for from black men, unfortunately. Well. There's reasons for that. There's reasons why we, we see very little leadership from black men. There's reasons for that. It's not just that we shy away from leadership. It's that in many instances, we don't, we don't, men, black men per se, we don't really know what it means to be a leader. I mean, most of our leaders have been killed imprisoned you think about all of the you know political prisoners that are in prison right now from the black panthers from ex-black panthers from muslims you know you think about all of the you know leaders who were killed were murdered in broad daylight and they do that purposely they do that purposely we want you to see us murdering your leaders martin luther king malcolm x we want you to see us murdering them. God forbid another from amongst you has the gall, has the audacity to stand up and stand in their shoes. And so we throw rocks from behind, you know, cars. You know, we 
throw rocks, you know, but every every time one from amongst us stands up, the rest will shut him down, you know. The Miseducation of the Negro. Read that book. And that'll explain to you why you've seen very little leadership within the Black community. Even within the Muslim experience. Even within the African-American Muslim experience. You don't find African-American Muslim imams, students of knowledge, <laughs> claiming the position of leadership. They'll claim student of knowledge. I'm just a student. I'm just a small student of knowledge. We'll play small, right? We'll play small because by doing so, it takes the burden, it takes the responsibility off of our shoulders. I'm just a student of knowledge, you know, just responsible for reading to you some books of what the scholars say. We'll never take a more authoritative position. We'll never take a more leadership role. We'll never, you know, even though none of us are qualified for that. If qualification is what we are waiting for, then we'll never see leadership because who is qualified? Malcolm, Martin, these guys were in their mid-30s. They hadn't even reached 40 years old yet. They hadn't reached 40 years old yet. 40 years old is the peak of manhood. But we'll play small because we don't have to deal with the responsibility that comes along with that. I can continue making mistakes. I can continue making errors. I can continue hiding under the radar. You understand? Because you're not going to see that leadership role. So there's, there's reasons why you don't see much leadership role from Black men. Yeah, prove me wrong. I'm a student of knowledge. I'm an imam. How many people you hear calling themselves a leader in the Muslim community? And I'm talking about amongst the African-American Muslims. Where are the leaders? No, everybody's a student of knowledge. Everybody's just trying to read from a book and, you know, just teach a little bit of knowledge of what I learned or what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala taught me, you know. with with leadership comes some level of audacity. And with audacity comes some level of ignorance. With audacity comes some level of ignorance. But we can't use that as, you know, the measuring stick to say, well, I'm not qualified. Well, who is qualified? So do we just continue to leave, you know, the, 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 the top tier leadership of our community empty we we leave that empty because nobody is qualified so we just the blind leading the blind what's going on here what's happening here yeah man so there's there's reasons for that there's reasons for that i get it Even even within the larger black community, even within the larger black community, you got all of these billionaire, millionaire boasting and bragging about how much money they have, rappers, actors, or whatever the case may be, and they all throw rocks from behind, you know, from behind a car. Nobody's going to step out and take that leadership role because nobody wants to make the sacrifice that comes along with that. They want to continue enjoying their high life. They want to continue enjoying, you know, what their constituency provides them. 
All right. They don't want to disrupt that. They don't want to ruffle any feathers. They'll throw a woke statement out there every now and again. They woke. They'll throw a woke comment out there. And we're like, oh, wow. See, he's woke. Got you. So the Prophet وسلم, he said, Oh Rabia, Ya Rabia, send me Uratik. Ask me for what you want and I'll give it to you. I will honor your request. And so after thinking long and hard about what a man and a power what a, with a powerful friend and close companion like Prophet Muhammad وسلم, could ask for. He waited a couple of days and the Prophet ﷺ came back to him and asked him again, Yeah, yeah, Rabia, Selni Urti. Oh Rabia, ask me for what you want and I'll give you what you want. I'll honor your request. And Rabia finally says to the Prophet, ﷺ, after thinking, what in the world could I ask this man to give me? And he says to the Prophet, ﷺ, I ask you for your marathaqa. I ask you for your companionship in paradise. That's it. I ask you for your companionship in paradise. Even the Prophet ﷺ himself was a bit surprised by the simplicity of his request, given the vast array of challenges someone in Rabia's situation usually faced. From the lower tiers of society, you know, there were tons of challenges that he, you know, experienced from social marginalization, you know, probably not able to get married. There were tons, tons of challenges that even many of the Sahaba experienced. Even many of the Sahaba experienced, you know, it wasn't all roses for many of the Sahaba. When we read these hadith, we read these materials, we don't look deep enough to see, put ourselves in that social condition, that environment, to see that not all of the Sahaba enjoyed, you know, what the what those from the upper tiers of society enjoyed. Even though they were companions of the Prophet ﷺ, they still had their own challenges. And I think a lot of times we we live in this fantasy world where we're just looking at the Sahaba, they're all one brotherhood, they all get along and everything is all smooth and nice and dandy for everybody. And it wasn't like that for everybody. You have to look at the social fabric social fabric you have to put yourself in that environment and understand that it wasn't all roses for everybody so the prophet وسلم, himself was surprised at the simplicity of rabia's request given the vast array of challenges someone in rabia's situation usually faced and so the prophet وسلم, asked rabia is there anything else you want like you can ask me for whatever you want you can ask me for whatever you want. Is there anything else that you want? Your request is so simple. I make dua for you every day <laughs> that you are my companion in paradise. That's simple. SubhanAllah. That's very simple. And Rabia, he replied in a negative. So the Prophet said, He said, help me to help you by continually, continuously making your salah. As long as you are making your salah, as long as you stay connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I can 
I can assist you with that. Help me to help you by continuously making your salah. That's a piece of advice that we can give to our children as well. Help me help you by continuing your salat. As long as you are praying, as long as you are staying connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I can make dua for you. I can, you know, I can help you as best as I can. Yusuf's request that the king place him over the treasury of the state was not a selfish attempt at seizing an opportunity, but a request to ensure that the position wouldn't be given to someone who was unqualified. It is important that we understand our own competencies as well as our areas of inadequacy and maneuver accordingly. You have to know your strengths and your weaknesses and move accordingly. You have to understand your strengths and your weaknesses and move accordingly and understand that more it doesn't necessarily mean more. <laughs> It is easy, as one of the scholars say, that it is easy to be grateful to God for a little than to be grateful to God for a lot. Take that. It is grateful to be, I promise you, it is grateful. It is easier to be grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for a little bit than to be grateful to him for a lot. You understand? The more that God gives you, the more that a God get, that God blesses you with, the more you are responsible to show gratitude. The more you are responsible to show gratitude. Subhanallah. It is easier to be grateful for a little bit than to be grateful for a lot. This is one of the reasons the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam used to stand up at night and pray all night so his feet would bleed. And even Aisha asked him, you know, why do you stand up and pray all night like this when God has forgiven you for your past and your present sins? And the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is looking at that like, well, isn't that an indicator that I should get up and pray? Shouldn't I be a grateful servant? Shouldn't I be great? Shouldn't I do more because he has forgiven me for my past and my future sins? I do more and not do less. It is great. It is easier to be grateful for a little than to be grateful for a lot. But some of us, we confuse, we conflate quantity with quality. We conflate the two. We think that more is more and less is less. But those who understand, who look with the lens of wisdom, they understand that less is more. <laughs> less is more. And more is actually less. But a person who has never really had anything, they don't understand that. They want it all. <laughs> right? This is why people become imams. He's not only the imam, he's... The, he's this, he's that, he's taking on so many different roles because it's like, give it all to me. You know, I'll take it on, I'll take all of it. I'll do the khutbahs, I'll, I'll do the marriages, I'll be the wali, I'll do this, I'll do that. Leadership is not about doing more. Leadership is about pushing people forward who have the competencies and putting them in their right places while you take a step back. Leadership is about delegating Leadership is not taking it all on your shoulders. That's foolishness. It's not leadership. 
Leadership is about delegating, putting people in their proper places so that you can do less, which frees you up time to do more. Guys, follow me. Hope I'm making sense. So it is important that we understand our own competencies as well as our areas of inadequacy and maneuver accordingly. The leader and scholar, Umar ibn Abdulaziz, he said, may Allah have mercy on the individual who recognizes his own level of competency. May Allah have mercy on the individual who understands his own level of competency. And while we all have a tendency to overestimate ourselves by taking on more than we can handle at one time or another, sometimes this is due to our fear of being inadequate, right? This is the overachiever, right? Anybody here an overachiever? You got five degrees, you got three bachelor's degrees, two master's degrees, two PhDs, right? You're overachiever. You got medals on your mantle from track and field and football. You got all these medals, right? You pride yourself on your accomplishments and your achievements out of fear of being inadequate. Out of fear that someone sees you, you know, sees straight through all of those achievements and accomplishments and see you who, for who you really are. So we hide behind these things. We hide behind the title Imam. I'm the Imam of the Masjid, right? And that title Imam backs people off of you. But there's some people who are sitting in the crowd who can see right through you. Or I graduated from this university or that university, and there's some people sitting in the crowd that can see straight through you. But you hide behind that because that's your protection. That says, that sends the message to the crowd that I matter, that I am adequate. I matter. But all of that is due to fear, the fear of being inadequate. And most of the time, you know, we do this, we take on more than what we can handle is because we fail to see the end at the beginning. Piece of advice here, never involve yourself in something that you can't see the end at the beginning. You have to be able to see the end at the very beginning. That's what's called hikmah, that's called wisdom. That's what's called wisdom. Being able to see the end at the beginning. And this is one of the reasons why most of us, I know I do, this is one of the reasons why I say no to certain things. If someone calls me, someone sends me an email, can you do this? Can you do it? No, I'm not going to do it. Why? Because I can see the end. I know how this is going to end. I know how this is going to end. So I say no from the very beginning because I can see the end at the very beginning. You understand? That's called wisdom. That's called wisdom. Being able to see, never involve yourself in something that you cannot see the end at the beginning. How is this going to end? Is this going to end favorable for me? 
Or is this going to end, you know, with my head on the chopping block? And for me, this is my gauge. Usually when I say no to something, it's usually because I can see the ending of this not working out for me. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes the human appetite as such when he said, indeed, we offer the trust of free will to the heavens, the earth, and the mountains, and they all declined to bear it. And they were in fear of it. But man undertook the responsibility of bearing it, and indeed, he was unjust and ignorant. The ability to see the end at the beginning helps us to avoid the pitfall of biting off more than we can chew. I'll say that again. The ability to see the end at the beginning helps us to avoid the pitfall of biting off more than we can chew. A minimalist approach tends to be more effective when the task at hand involves a risk that is more costly than one can afford to take. I'll say that again. A minimalist approach tends to be more effective when the task at hand involves a risk that is more costly than one can afford to take. I end the chapter with a quote from Leonardo da Vinci, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. Take that and run with it. Simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. And we live in a time where being simple just doesn't cut it. Everybody got to have Louis Vuitton over everything. Everybody had to have Gucci on top of everything. I mean, like, it's just disgusting, to be honest with you. And I'm not saying that, you know, wearing Gucci, Louis Vuitton, or wearing any of these name brands is something wrong with it. I have some of these name brands. But the, the gaudiness of it and the wanton display of it you know on social media it's just like every page you go to everybody doesn't feel adequate unless they have some of these name brands showing all over your bag all over your glasses all over this all over that you know it's just you know just a a display of your riches that you use to define you these are the things that you use to define who you are and you don't realize that simplicity is the, you want to be sophisticated, be simple in your approach. Simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. That is what makes you sophisticated, is the simplicity in your approach. The richest man in the world is not the one who has everything. The richest man in the world is the one who needs nothing. You understand? You ever have money in your bank account and you like, I don't need anything. <laughs> like I literally have every pair, of most of the shoes and sneakers that I want, that I need. I look in my closet, I have clothes. I, I, you know, I don't need anything. The richest person in the world is not the one who has everything. The richest person in the world is the one who needs nothing. I don't need anything. I'm content with what I have. I'm good. Some of us, we don't feel right if we're not spending money. We got to find a, a reason to go out and spend some money.
what makes you sophisticated, what makes you intriguing is your simplicity. Very simple. People wonder, what makes you so content? What is it about you that makes you, you know, so easygoing, so simple? And then there are those who, you know, they open up, start a lecture, they use all these fancy Arabic phrases and terms, and, you know, you, you over, over complicate, you know, something that should be a very simple task, and that is educating people. Educating people about God should not be complicated. <laughs> educating people about Islam should not be complicated. You should not be sitting here scratching your head trying to figure out what the heck did he just say? What is he even talking about? I don't get it. I don't understand it. Maybe I'm just not really cut out for being a Muslim. You ever listen to somebody and after they finish talking, you just feel like maybe I'm just really not cut out for this whole Islam thing. Maybe this is not for me. You know what I mean? Because the, the person has oversimplified, overcomplicated unnecessarily something that should be so simple. Something that should be so simple. Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he said, Al-ilm nukta. Al-ilm nukta. Kathraha al-jahilun. Al-ilm, knowledge of the religion, knowledge of God, is very simplistic. Nukta. Just one point, one simple point. La ilaha illallah. That was the Prophet sallallahu message from the very beginning. That was the foundation of his message. La ilaha illallah. There's no God that is deserving of worship except God. That's it. No deity, no idol, no God, no human being that deserves worship except God alone. Very simplistic. Al-ilm nukta. Very simple. al-jahilun. People who are ignorant, who don't understand the sophistication of simplicity, they have overcomplicated the message. And that's that's the time that we're living in now, where the message of Islam has been overcomplicated unnecessarily. Unnecessarily. We're going over books and points, and you know, you're taking all of these notes, and it's just like, to what end? To what end are you taking all these notes? You got notebooks filled. And I mean, I'm not talking about from a student of knowledge perspective. Obviously, a student of knowledge, if you're a student and you're functioning in that capacity, then yes, writing is mandatory. It's imperative. I still have notebooks from when I was in a university, but I'm a student. That's something that I have committed my life to. The average everyday nine to five Muslim doesn't need that level of knowledge, doesn't need that level or that depth of understanding of the religion to practice Islam, to be a good Muslim. They don't, they don't require that. They don't need that. They don't need 10 points here, 20 points here, 11 points here, and seven points here. They don't require that. After you turn your life off, I'm going back to my <laughs> the rudiments of my daily life. Nobody is going to remember all of that. Nobody is even going to apply most of it because it's over, compli overly complicated, unnecessary. Knowledge is one simplistic point. Very simple. Being a Muslim is not complicated. It's pretty much how you living your life, just putting God at the center of it. That's it. 
putting God at the center of it. Everything revolves around the remembrance of God. That's it. Continue living your life. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَإِذَا قُضِيَةُ الصَّلَاةُ فَانْتَشِرُوا فِي الْعَرْضِ وَابْتَغُوا مِنْ فَضْلِ اللَّهِ وَاذْكُرُوا اللَّهَ كَثِيرًا لَعَلَّكُمْ تَشْكُرُونَ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about Jumu'ah that when the salah is finished, when you finish the Jumu'ah salah, فَانْتَشِرُوا فِي الْعَرْضِ Then go back out into the world وَابْتَغُوا and go seek the provision that God has written for you. Go back out to work. Go enjoy your life. Go back to work. But continue to remember God. Continue to remember Allah so that perhaps you may be grateful. When Jumu'ah is finished, go back out. Go to work. Go work. Go earn your living. This is Islam. This is the simplicity of Islam that has been overly complicated by educators, scholars, imams, students of knowledge who have this, you know, void, <laughs> this void that they have to fill deep within themselves. And I mean, chew the meat, spit out the bones. If it apply, let it apply. If it doesn't, it doesn't. That's it. That is it. That is the life of being a Muslim, you know, and we overcome overly complicated because there's some deep void that we have inside of us that we need to make ourselves feel adequate. So then when we present Islam, when we are teaching Islam and educating about Islam, we have to make it so complicated, so convoluted, so unnecessarily, you know, oversimplified, right? For no other reason other than to fulfill, you know, to fulfill a void that is deep down within them. You guys have been great. Uh, don't forget, we are still collecting funds from Masjid Al-Rodha. Uh, we have one more day. Tomorrow will, will be our final day uh, for our phase two of Masjid Al-Rodha, and that is the fundraising for the building. Uh, you can donate using Cash App if you would like to. Uh, the Cash App sign... Rolda, R-A-W-D-A-H, Masjid, M-A-S-J-I-D, Rolda, Masjid, all right? Um, or you can use Zelle or PayPal, uh, masjidarolda at gmail.com, masjidarolda at gmail.com. Um, alhamdulillah, we, we've had some donations yesterday. We've had some donations the day before, but let's keep the donations coming in this morning. Let's see if we can raise $2,000. Is there are there 20 people that are listening right now who can donate a hundred dollars? 20 people, that's all I need. 20 people who can donate a hundred dollars. If you have a hundred dollars sitting in your bank account that you ain't doing nothing with, that you might go out, you know, and go buy this or go buy that unnecessarily, um, you can donate that to the masjid and let us put it to work for you. Let us invest it in a property, in a building that we are going to open, that people are going to come in and pray and make salat, make sujood, and you are going to get the reward for it. You will be dead in your grave, and all of those hasanats will continue pouring in for you, even after you're gone. Even after you're gone, those hasanat will continue to pour in for you. 
even after you have you you've gone because of an investment that you made a smart investment that you made right now we're going to take your money and we are going to purchase a property that is going to become a message you understand you you understand how amazing that is you understand the opportunity that is being extended to you right now subhanallah 20 people alhamdulillah i think we got three people so far i'm going to pin the uh cash app Uh, Roda Masjid. Cash App is Roda Masjid, R A W D A H Masjid. So I just pinned the comment. I pinned the comment there. I'll pin the comment for you guys here. We just need 20 people. Can we ask how much has been raised so far? Absolutely, $75,000. Our goal was $250,000. Alhamdulillah. <laughs> no, sure, we, we're 100% transparent. You can go to our website and uh, on our website, it tells you how much we've collected. We've collected in cash, $75,000. Alhamdulillah, we have a pledge for $20,000 from a good good brother that I know, inshallah, and I know he's good for it. Uh, um, I'm gonna put the, um, the Zelle and PayPal. Masjid Roba at gmail.com. So the... Um, Meshitarolda at gmail.com. That is um, our Zelle and PayPal. All right. So, uh, inshallah ta'ala, we will have. Uh, do you have to be a member of the Meshit? No, you don't have to be a member, but being a member is. Um, being a member has its perks, and um, we do encourage brothers and sisters to join the community. You don't necessarily have to join the community if you choose not to, um, but alhamdulillah, we are trying to build a community here to have that community atmosphere, um, and alhamdulillah, we, we, are, we are doing that. As of currently, we have 180 families that are members of Meshit Aroba. We had 220 and then, you know, I guess, I don't know what happens to some people, whatever the case may be, but 180 people, 180 families currently are members of Meshit Aroba. And they're not just from, they're from all around the world, you know, from all around the world, all right? And the, the perk of that or the perks of that is that number one, we have, as I explained last night, we have classes, we have have courses that we're offering. We offer counseling sessions. We offer, you know, uh, family, you know, uh, activities. You have $50. Absolutely. That's okay. $50 is definitely okay. Will God accept $50? Absolutely. Because all, all of it is going to him for his cause. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's not going in my pocket personally. 
Absolutely. One of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's names is Ashakur, that Allah is appreciative of any little we do. Even if you have a dollar, you have two dollars. There's someone in our community who literally donates three dollars every single week. Now, if they've donated a dollar every week, right, that's twelve dollars a month. You know, you multiply that times 10, that's one hundred and twenty dollars, you know, give or take, you know, and close to a year. I mean, it adds up. It's the consistency. It's the consistency. Jazakallah khair and uh, Sister Zakia, I do appreciate that. We need 20 people to donate $100. All right. And I'm going to come on tomorrow. Tomorrow will be our last day for our campaign for the building for Masjid Arolda. That doesn't mean that we're not going to uh, stop asking for you know financial assistance or donations. It's not necessarily because we necessarily need the donations, but giving money is also part of our religion. Giving money is also part of our religion. If you mail a check or anything, you can make it out to uh, Rolda Islamic Center. Rolda Islamic Center or Rolda Foundation. Do not send anything to Shadi Muhammad. Don't send anything in my name, please. All right. But donations, charity, is it's part of our religion. Um, I'll have, I'll do another talk tomorrow and, and maybe Saturday or Sunday. Uh, but I'm, I'm only free because as teachers, we're out this week. So that is the only reason why I'm able to jump on every morning. Um, but I will not be able to do this come next week. So I hope you guys take advantage of it now. And you don't have to restrict yourself to a hundred dollars if you have 500 Yesterday morning, we had a brother who donated uh, $800. Jazakallah khair, uh, Sheikh Abdul Karim. Uh, I know the brother personally, alhamdulillah, donated $800. Uh, a sister who donated $500. So you don't have to restrict, restrict yourself to $100. But we do encourage, you know, a substantial amount. $100, you know, times 10 adds up, right? $100 times 20 adds up. Um, we, we're um, coming down to the, you know, closing end of, you know, our part in, you know, securing the facility, inshallah ta'ala. Once I have the keys, we will go live and I will remove the cross off of the church with my bare hands. That is something that I am looking forward to. It's a church. The facility is a church. Substantial size, mashallah, upstairs, downstairs, has a full kitchen, has a parking lot, can, you know, can probably host around 60 to 70 cars in the parking lot, has a grass area that inshallah we're going to put uh, some swings for children, you know, some, uh, maybe a park or something, um, you know, to accommodate the children. And uh, inshallah, we, we plan on, you know, uh, opening up a daycare uh, within the facility and the houses that are surrounding, it's in a residential area, which is good, which is what we were looking for. Um, we want to start buying some of the property want to start buying some of the property and turn that into, you know, a small little Muslim hub. That, that's our vision. That's our vision. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, bless you all. Uh, please, if you have, you know, $50, $100, $500 sitting in a bank account, 
that you're not doing much with, you're not doing anything with, you're just holding on to, don't hold on to it. Don't hold on to it. Donate it. Give. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, who will give to Allah a good loan and Allah will multiply it for you many times over. As in, in my life, I have never given money. Wallahi, I'll tell you a true story real quick. And I don't like doing this because I don't want to, I don't want you to misconstrue that I'm telling you this as an encouragement for you to give money. You should feel obligated to give, you know, to you know, especially to someone who was building a masjid, you should feel the obligation to give. I, I should not have to give you all of these weird stories to make you feel more inspired to give. The Prophet ﷺ, he would just simply ask the Sahaba and they would give. Who has money for this? Who has money for that? And the Sahaba, they understood that. They understood that. Yes, you can send it via PayPal. Uh, yes. We'll, we'll transfer it over and make sure that it goes to the proper place. So um, one time I remember um, I was just feeling good one day and uh, I pull up to a stop sign and there's a, a homeless guy out and asking for money. And um, I had a $20 bill in my sun visor. Uh, I, I like to keep money in my sun visor, a few dollars. I don't necessarily carry money on me. But uh, if I have a few dollars left over or whatever, I usually keep a few dollars in my sun visor. You know, so when I pull up to a stop sign, you know, just just a real quick, easy way to get some hasanat. You know, I have two dollars in my sun visor, guy standing out there asking for money, roll your window down, here you go, bismillah, alhamdulillah. You just got some hasanat just for doing that, right? So I had $20 in my sun visor and I'm like, dag, do I give him the whole 20, like it's a $20 bill. So it's not like I had a 10, two fives or four fives. You know, I'm like, dag, it's a whole 20. I, I, I don't know how I feel about giving him the whole 20. So then somebody, it, it was it was actually a Friday. So I'm just like, it's Friday, bismillah, just give him the whole 20. So I rolled my window down and here you go, take the 20. And you know, I kind of felt a little kind of way about it. I'm like, dang, I gave him a whole 20. Usually I give a dollar, two dollars, five dollars, you know, ten dollars max, but never twenty dollars, you know what I mean, in one shot. So I, I was a little, I was a little kind of feeling some type of way about it. But it's Friday, it's Jumwa, Bismillah, just left the masjid. Here you go. Bismillah, take it. Wallahi, as soon as I walked in my house, as soon as I walked in my house, I looked down at my phone. And uh, there was a deposit that came in uh, from a, a good brother, a deposit that came into um, the, the building fund uh, for $1,000. And I was like, wow, look at that. Like, look at the connection. I gave this guy $20. I walk in my house. I look down at my phone. I see a notification of somebody donating $1,000 to the machine. It's like, subhanAllah, man. It happens, I promise you. I promise you, if you don't believe me, you don't have to donate to a masjid or roller. Donate it wherever you want to donate it. Your local masjid, right? Donate to your local masjid. Go to your local masjid right now or go to your local masjid's Facebook page or whatever, your donation page. Donate $50. Watch how it comes back to you. Watch how it comes back to you. You can thank me later by making dua for me. 
Thank me later by making dua for me. That's it. That's all I want from you. Just ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive me. Ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give me Jannah. That's it. But I promise you, donate $100 right now. Number one, look at how you feel after you donate. After you push the send button, you send that all, bismillah, look at how you feel. I let something go that I was so attached to. It's liberating when you give. And then watch how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives that. He may not give it back to you in money. He may give it back to you in an increase in iman, an increase in faith, an increase in trust in you. Nalima, jazakallah khairan. Nalima, if you're listening, I don't even have to say what is what. You already know, but I do appreciate it. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward you. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward you generously in this life as well as in the hereafter. Alhamdulillah. Uh, I came in bit, a bit late. A bit late? We've been going for over an hour. That's, that's Late is an understatement. The project is uh, building a masjid here in Newark, Delaware. Masjid Aroma, where we're purchasing a church. It used to be a church. And I mean, just that alone, just to be able to take something that, uh, a place where people used to commit shirk, 